0: Welcome to our small group series, The Life of Moses. If you're interested in joining a small group, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Join us as we explore Life of Moses, the story of the Lord drawing his people out of slavery and into a relationship with him. The Lord be with you. I want to remind you that uh, after the second service, we have a congregational forum where we invite anyone who has questions about the current leadership transition we are in. uh, We want you to bring those. Our elders will be there. Nick and I will be there. Uh, You are welcome. Come and hear uh, about the transition, both its process or any concerns you have, especially about the guy who is stepping in. (laughs) We hope to see you at noon down in the activity center uh, near the west entrance. Our subject today is blood, frogs, gnats, flies, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, death. Let us pray. The plagues, some of you bowed your head, (laughs) the plagues of Egypt. You know, the writer of Exodus never calls them plagues. He calls them my mighty signs and wonders. Signs of what? What do these 11 signs, counting the staff that turns into a snake, what do they mean? There's been lots of opinions over the years. There are those who hear about the plagues of Egypt and think, yes! A God who smites bad people. Count me in. And there are those who say, no! A God of judgment who kills people he doesn't like? Count me out. And then there are those who register a strong maybe. Like Paul Thomas Anderson, who produced one of the great films of the 20th century in 1999, made Roger Ebert's top 50 films of all time, some of you might remember it, a film called Magnolia. Magnolia is about the intersection of eight or nine lives on a random day in in a place near Los Angeles. All of these people carrying deep wounds from their childhood. In fact, throughout the movie, the narrator keeps breaking in with this big idea. He says, uh, you may get through with your past, but your past is never through with you. And then what this movie is most famous for is near the end, there's this climactic scene where frogs start raining down all over the city of Los Angeles. It is so intense. I wanted to show a clip because I love movie clips, but it is far too uh, intense for a family gathering such as this. Frogs raining down, except for this two-second pause on the sh- frog shower where there's this placard that says Exodus 8-2. And as you'll see, Exodus 8-2 is about frogs. And then it starts pouring and pouring and pouring again. Then you go back and watch the film again And what you notice the second time is how the number eight and two are on the screen over 100 times throughout the movie. Paul Thomas Anderson's way of saying the presence of God and his evaluation is always in your life, always. Roger Ebert was so taken by it, as I said he made it as one of his top 50, the late uh, Chicago movie critic, he wrote that this device, falling frogs, has sometimes been joked about, puzzles me. I find it in it, a way to elevate the whole story into a larger realm of inexplicable but real behavior. We need something beyond the human to add another dimension. Frogs have rained from the sky eight times in this century, but never mind the facts. Attend instead to Exodus 8.2, which is cited on a placard in the film. Here it is. And if thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. Let who go? In this case, I believe it refers not to people, but to fears, shames, sins. Interesting. What do the signs given to Egypt in 1446 mean? That's what we're after this morning, let me give you the macro structure so you'll be able to <laughs> walk through the plagues with, it, with me, and then uh, we'll dive in. I believe that the signs of the plagues tell us three things about God. First, the signs tell us that the Lord is a holy God, there is no one like him, no one else like the Lord the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's holy, completely other, set apart, holy. Secondly, the plagues tell us that the Lord, he is a judging God. Yes, he is present in our lives, in our world, evaluating, judging. Our Lord is a judging God, and we want to understand what that means. And then lastly, The signs tell us that the Lord is a saving God and there is the great irony which makes Christianity different from any other religion that through judgment, God is actually saving the world and you and I. So he's a holy God, a judging God, a saving God. Now, are you ready to enter the plagues? <laughs> Let's start in Egypt. Egypt was the first great world superpower. Pinnacle of wealth and power. And the pharaoh who ruled Egypt, he was looked upon as the divine human representative leader of Egypt. He was called the son of Ra, Re. Ra was the top god in the Egyptian pantheon of gods. So Pharaoh was perceived to be the son of the gods. The ruler of Egypt, the most powerful nation at that time, known to the world. Everyone's eyes were on Egypt. Everyone knew about Pharaoh. So Here's what triggers the signs. Moses and Aaron, obedient to God, and as we remember from Nick's message last week, not too thrilled about it, but they go, and in Exodus chapter five, they say this to Pharaoh. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. What triggers the signs is Pharaoh's question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? You see, Pharaoh was the first great religious pluralist. And what he's saying to Moses and Aaron is, you've got your gods, I've got my gods. Why do you think your view on spiritual reality is any better or different than my view of spiritual reality? And the plagues seek to answer that question. In fact, there is no mistaking what's going on here with the plagues. The plagues are selectively chosen for specific purposes, namely to judge Egypt's Gods. We see it in chapter 12 of Exodus at the plague of the firstborn. On that same night, I will pass through Israel and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. That's why the plagues. To bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, I am the Lord. And we see this played out if you look at each plague in specific. The Nile River, turning to blood, the Nile River was in the pantheon of Egyptian gods. They worshiped the Nile. Frogs were the god of fertility. The sun and the moon were in the pantheon, and there's the darkness. Most every plague is a direct insult and rebuke to an Egyptian god. And we see the reason why God is doing it. It's because he's saying, they're not the gods you should fear. I am the Lord. Look at Exodus chapter 7. We see it spelled out clearly. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like a god to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. So... Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. And one more text. Almost in every plague, there is a statement like that. Then they will know that I am the am the Lord. This is just before the hailstorm. What the hell? Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out... That's uh, chapter um, 9, sorry, chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning... Confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they will worship me or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. Why? So that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. He continues, for by now I should have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up Pharaoh in Egypt for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The first message of the plagues is this. All religious views are not equal. Only God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is great. Why? Because he is God in his own category. Every other thing is in its own category. You and I are humans. Fido is a dog. Aspen is a tree. Earth is a planet. Milky Way is a galaxy among billions of galaxies. Satan is a demon. Gabriel is an angel. Egypt has their gods, Rome has their gods, Assyria has their gods, Babylon has their gods, America has its gods. Only God is great. There is no one like him. He's holy, set apart, completely other. Only God. Is great. Now we need to move on because he's great. He's also a judging God, but I want to say two quick things for you just to think and maybe be takeaways. Take them out with you. First is this. You've never been more right as a creature made by this God than when you're thinking about him. You've never been more right as a human being than when you are thinking about God. So think about him, read his word, listen to talks, have him speak to you, just create space in your life to think about God. Nothing you do is more right than that. And second, nothing we do as a church is more right than worship. Proclaiming the value of God in our world and in our lives. And so we should be here, ready on our feet, on our face, ready to give our hearts to the Lord because only God is great. Is that how you came in this morning? That's how we come in. That's why we worship. That's why we have liturgy. The the meaning of liturgy actually means work. Worship should feel like work. Yeah, you're standing. Yeah, you're singing. Yeah, you're doing all these things that we do nowhere else. And that is the point. Only. Only. God is great, and he deserves that. All right, first message of the plagues, he's holy, which means he's the judge and a judging God. So the commentators are quick to point out that when you go through the plagues, they're they're natural. One, One commentator called the plagues natural and consequential let me unpack what he what he meant by that natural and consequential they all are like connected to each other one follows the other so the nile turns to blood everything in the rivers die so all the frogs are hopping into the your house into the king's oven it says which is the last place you'd expect to find a frog cuz they need moisture they're everywhere And then, you know, Pharaoh pleads, Moses pleads, the frog dies. What happens next? Of course, gnats and flies. All this dead, rotting flesh around? Of course. And then Pharaoh pleads and and Moses pleads, and they all go away, but the flies have already infected the cattle with anthrax. And all the cattle die. And then, of course, uh, all the cattle die, and all the gnats have bitten all the human beings, and they have boils. So you see how they're all kind of natural and consequential. What in the world is going on here? Why draw it out over several weeks? Why? You know, one commentator said God could have been a lot more efficient. I mean, imagine he could have just gone in with Aaron, had the staff, and say, "Pharaoh, here's the deal. Let us go." or else. And he, Aaron starts pointing his staff at all the guards, and they spontaneously combust. Pharaoh, you're next. Let us go. I mean, this could have been done in five minutes. Why the plagues? Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt, here's the word, harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. Now, it's 50-50 commentators on whether that's the right word choice. By the New International Version, harshly. In most other contexts, that word would be translated capriciously or contrivingly. One commentator said, and this grabbed me how the Lord toyed with the Egyptians. Now, I can certainly understand why your translating committees would not go with the word toy because none of us wants to think about God toying with people. But what if that's some of what's going on here? What if God is toying with the Egyptians? Why would God toy with the Egyptians? Answer. They deserved it. <laughs> they were throwing babies into the Nile River. Do you think it's accidental that it was the Nile that was first and turned to blood? They were enslaving groups of people, probably not just Israel, but massive groups of people to to fill their economy and keep their power position in the world. They were mistreating people made in the image of God to keep their place at the top. Do you think you can get away with that forever? Commentators note how it seems that God is just lifting his hands off Egypt. All these things are happening. It's like creation gone berserk. Why did creation go berserk? Because Egypt was berserk. They were killing their babies, killing others' babies, enslaving people. They were going back to Genesis chapter one and verse two before the spirit hovered over the deep. It was darkness, and chaos. That's exactly what's happening here. God's evaluation of Egypt is that they are darkness and chaos, and the time has come to call stop. And Egypt is judged. Stop. The second message of the plague, plagues, is that when you take God out of the center of your life and existence and whatever else you put in there, you are going to experience darkness, chaos, and disintegration in your life because God spoke the world into existence. Our world has a moral fiber, his character. And when you go against his character, there's disintegration that will come to a land or a person. When you, uh, you, see, all of God's commands are aligned to work with how he's made the world. And when you resist his commands, disintegration and darkness and chaos enter. Now let me illustrate it with maybe a little lighter, a little lighter uh, illustration, but you'll get the idea. 56-year-old man went to the doctor not long ago. And the doctor's looking at the chart, and we're going through all the tests and the results, and she says, everything looks pretty good, Larry, except this one thing called cholesterol. So you need to stop eating so much sugar, specifically ice cream, specifically vanilla ice cream with peanut butter <laughs> topping. You need, to, you need to stop eating potato chips. You need to stop eating all the salt that you consume and basically every good thing in creation is now off my plate. (laughs) Now, I could have responded to her in a couple of ways. I could have said, who do you think you are? You're just exercising raw power to control my life. Or I could have said, does that mean if you catch me eating a Snickers bar, you're gonna have me arrested? What I did say, begrudgingly, maybe you're right. Maybe you know how the human body works and what's the best fuel. Maybe that's why you went to school for 20 gazillion years of your life, to learn how to talk about cholesterol. Maybe I should obey Your directives. And that's how it is with God, only a hundred times more. Because He not only knows how the human body works, He made it. And He not only made the physical body, He makes the spiritual components and the psychological components and the social components of our existence. He knows how the world works, He made it. He's our maker. Do you know what that means? Because God is our maker, He knows how we work, He knows what works. That means, listen, this is really important. When God says do to you, He says, He means, do help yourself. And when He says don't to you, He means, don't hurt yourself. When He says, Directive, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He means if you put me at the center of your life, things will go well. Doesn't mean you won't have suffering and loss, no, no. But it means that at the end of it all, you get him. and Things will go well with that knowledge in your mind. If you put anything else at the center, disintegration. You know this, right? Probably all of us have danced around this. If you make your career the center of your life, so God, not right now, career, you're what I'm living for. If you put your career in there as what makes you tick, you know what happens, right? Then if anything goes wrong on your job, you are devastated, Now, I'm not saying there's not job stress and that we don't get upset and bad things happen at work. Of course, we always struggle with work. But if work is the very reason for your existence, you will be blown to bits if something goes wrong with your work. And then you know what happens next, right? Because you're fretting about it all the time, your relationships start to suffer you live on eggshells, you live with anger, everything starts to disintegrate. Or another example, God says, look, the world is broken. With me at the center, there's one thing you need to learn and that's how to forgive people because I guarantee you people will hurt you and everyone you know will disappoint you at some point. Everyone. Thought there'd be an amen around that one. Everyone you know will disappoint you. Okay. So what happens? Well, if you don't learn, and keep God at the center, if you don't learn to forgive, which is the essence of being a Christian, forgive, then you are going to struggle. Parts of your life are going to come apart because all you're holding on to is bitterness and anger and hurt. And you know, right, that not only comes out against the person you're mad at, but if the person was a woman, let's say, and you're mad at a woman, pretty soon you're mad at all women, or if that person who injured you is a foreigner of a different ethnic background, you hate them all pretty soon until you deal with that hurt. Forgive. Our God is a holy God. There is no one like him. Only God is great, which means he's always evaluating, constantly calling people to consider him as the center of life. He is the center. Of life, but if that we stopped there, ended the message, prayed, went home, watch the Broncos now, there'd be nothing but fear and trembling not because of the Baltimore Ravens. <laughs> That's every other religion so far that we've talked about. God is holy, He's evaluating you, so you better shape up. You hope you're good enough. That's every other religion except one Christianity goes one more step. God is a saving God. So you read through the plagues and you scratch your head, you're thinking, where is grace? Where's like forgiveness in the plagues? Well, let's remember there were 11 of them. God is patient. He is not willing that any should perish. 11 plagues, it could have been five minutes. There's 11 signs Not to mention, within several of the signs, you get these little glimpses, right? How about the, again, chapter nine, the big hail plague? Isn't it interesting that before God sends it down, he tells Egypt, hey, you better get your cattle out of the pastures and your farmhands off the fields because it's coming. Now, what kind of a God would do that? Warn the Egyptians about their cattle and about their farmhands before it comes? A God whose instinct, whose heart is to save. And in these plagues, he's saving Israel. And that's where we'll pick up next week with the Passover and the Exodus. He's also saving Egypt. Back in chapter nine, when we read that earlier, God said that what's happened to Egypt is gonna go out to all nations. And here we are, thousands of years later, talking about what God and Egypt did in this, uh, in this face-off, and people are being called to put God at the center. He is using the nations to save the world. That's his plan. And then lastly, he's even dialoguing with Pharaoh. Now this whole Pharaoh hardening his heart and God thing, I don't know. Talk about it in your small groups. I'll make two quick comments. One, to me, it's again this interplay of human freedom and agency and God's sovereignty. Last week, Nick talked about it with Moses, and it was a good thing, right? We're glad for free will. But it's also true that human beings can make bad choices, And yet God still rules and overrules, whether it's Pharaoh in the Old Testament or Judas the betrayer in the New Testament, God rules and overrules human free agency. I don't know how he does it. He must be big. Second thing I would say, and this is really for your small groups, I think this is very interesting. First five plagues, the text says either Pharaoh hardened his heart or Pharaoh's heart was hard. There's a line. The last five plagues, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. At some point, it seems to me, the longer you resist God, the more resistant you become which should keep us on our knees for everyone we love. Boundaried by Jesus saying once about the rich, it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Except that nothing is impossible with God. God. What does all this mean about a saving God? Here it is. God uses even his signs of judgment to bring about salvation. Jesus said in John chapter 5 that everything Moses said points to him. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So what he's saying, that even these plagues in somehow, in some fashion, point To Jesus. How do the plagues point to Jesus? We also know about a firstborn son who dies in the dark. In Matthew 26, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm suggesting that Moses, he wasn't thinking about Jesus, didn't know about Jesus, but God was using him to point to Jesus. As a, he, Moses' life was a sign pointing to Jesus that one day the firstborn son of God would come and he would die in the dark He would receive on him all the plagues that you and I deserved and the blood and the water would pour out. Jesus claimed to be the judge, but when he came the first time, he did not bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. Jesus claimed to be the maker, but when he came, he was unmade so that you and I could be remade and find acceptance and forgiveness do you believe the signs christ has come christ has died christ has risen christ is coming again do you believe the signs if you do number 1 you will be verbal about your faith You will witness. You will invite people to Alpha. You will be loving your neighbors, knowing their names, praying for them. You will engage them. You'll stop your lawnmower when you see one out, and you'll go up to them and talk in a non-stocky sort of way. (laughs) Your neighbors matter to you. And you have this goal of getting them to come to Alpha someday. Someday. You become verbal if you believe the signs. And secondly, you get busy. Jesus came and he did miracles. He had signs and the signs credentialed him. And what the signs were were not just a pause and how broken the world is when he would make the blind see or the deaf hear. No, what Jesus did when he was making the blind see and the deaf hear was showing, hey, this is how everyday life is with me. This is how it's supposed to be. And when that starts leaking into our hearts, all the broken stuff going on around us, we don't get cynical, we get busy. Because we know Jesus is out to restore all things. And so we go and we rebuild houses for the poor and we tutor kids in the inner city and we fix widow's gutters and we learn about the immigration crisis in our country, and I want to put that up. We have an amazing opportunity, uh, and uh, after the second service on October 24th, we have a woman in our church who's getting her PhD in the whole immigration uh, situation in, in our country, and she's spent time down in McAllen, Texas, uh, an authority on what's going on, but I want you to hear this. The most important thing about this seminar is it's not Well, how to argue the Republican side of the immigration crisis, or how to argue the Democrat side of the immigration crisis. The point of this seminar is to say, how should we, as a citizen of heaven, as the church of God, love our neighbor from a different land? You need to be there, because we're to witness, and we're to work. Because Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ is coming again. Let's stand. Let's proclaim this in song so that we can sing it into our hearts and leave and share it with someone this week. Let's sing. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.